Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You guys give a good welcome. Do you know that? I'm going to take this home with me. Next Sunday when I'm preaching in my home church, I'm going to say, you guys are rubbish at welcoming. <laughs> That's great. No, honestly, it's my pleasure to be here with you. Really, really is. And uh, just to open up God's word and uh, to learn together. God really wants you to know that Jesus of Nazareth was very weak. People don't often think that. People often think, no, God wants us to know that Jesus is mighty and strong. That's absolutely true. But when you read Mark's gospel, you discover that God also wants us to know that Jesus, when he came as a man ministering in Galilee, was nothing much to look at. You know, in Isaiah 53, where it said he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. When you read Mark's gospel, you realize Jesus is massive. And when he came as a man, he came in pure weakness. It's interesting. Uh, if you've got a Bible, turn to Mark's gospel. If you uh, haven't got a Bible, I'm going to put the verses up on the screen. And if you don't know much about Mark's gospel, I better explain. Basically, uh, Jesus had 12 disciples, and the leading disciple was named Peter. And Peter was rubbish at writing, okay? He was a fisherman, and he wrote two letters called 1 and 2 Peter, which for a start was not the most original names for those two letters. But when you look at the letters, they are the worst Greek in the New Testament. And uh, fortunately, he, he had a friend as he traveled around the Roman Empire, telling people in the years after Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension back to heaven, uh, Peter would go around the Roman Empire telling people his story of what it was like to follow Jesus. Unfortunately, he had a friend who was much better at writing Greek than him, a guy called Mark. In, uh, in uh, 1 Peter, he actually refers to Mark. He calls him his dear son. This wasn't really his son. He's just a team member who went around and helped him out. So when you read Mark's gospel, the testimony, if you look at like first, second century uh, history documents, uh, they all say Mark wrote down what Peter wrote, uh, what Peter preached verbally, Mark wrote it down. So when you're reading Mark's gospel, you're reading Peter's account of what it was like to follow Jesus, which is kind of cool, hey? If you want to know what Jesus is like, if you're not a Christian, you want to know, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Listen, Jesus' leading disciple tells you when you read Mark's gospel. If you're a Christian, you think, I'd really like to get to know Jesus better. I come and I, everybody's worshipping Jesus and I feel like I'm somehow out of it. Maybe you are. Read Mark's gospel. You'll get to know what Jesus is like. Listen, worship is not about the volume. It's not about how late you went to bed last night and how many espresso coffees you've had this morning. It's about how well you know Jesus. And then someone can strike any old chord. And if you know Jesus, you want to worship. And so Peter explains what it was like following Jesus. And I've got to tell you, it is great news that Peter says, well, he was really weak. That's the first thing that struck me. No, Peter's not playing down the fact that Jesus is God. You read Mark chapter 9, he talks about the transfiguration when he saw Jesus in all his heavenly glory as he is right now. Amazing. But most of the time, Peter's emphasizing the fact that Jesus didn't put on an act for him. You know, you meet people, maybe people you work with, they try and pretend they're really strong, really tough, and you know they're not really like that. You know what I mean? They're putting up a fake show of strength. Jesus never put on a show of strength. He always put on a show of weakness for Peter. 
So you read Mark's gospel and you find really surprising things. Like in uh, Mark 4 verse 38, um, they get into, a, a, into Peter's fishing boat. And it's so stormy that Peter the fisherman thinks, this boat is about to go underwater. We're all going to die. And then it says, and Jesus was asleep in the boat. I mean, how tired do you have to be to be asleep in that kind of situation? Or Mark 7, 24, it says, um, Jesus took Peter on holiday with him. They went to Tyre, one of the beautiful ancient cities of the world. It just says this, um, Jesus entered a house and didn't want anyone to know about it. I mean, do you ever get peopled out? Do you ever go on holiday? You think, I, I really don't want to be talking to the people on the next table. Please, I don't want a shared pool. I just want to be on my own. Peter just tells us what it was like following Jesus around. He tells about the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14, where uh, Mark says, Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He turns to Peter and the other disciples says, I really need your friendship right now. So when you read what Jesus was really like walking around Galilee and Jerusalem, you discover he went out of his way to demonstrate that he was weak. Often, he would borrow things even when he didn't particularly need to borrow them. He's born in a borrowed manger, right? That's how it begins. He uh, starts preaching from a borrowed boat. He goes into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, has the Last Supper in a borrowed guest room, is crucified and is buried in a borrowed tomb. When he wants to tell a story using a denarius, which isn't a huge amount of money, he borrows one from someone in the crowd. It's like Jesus was constantly saying, would you help me? And, um, you know, when you read Mark's gospel, you discover what Jesus is, was really like when he was walking the, the areas of Galilee and so on. Uh, people didn't look at him and say, wow, we just, we just can't get enough of listening to this guy. They said things like, why would we listen to this carpenter? Mark 6 verse 3. Mark 6 verse 3, 6 verse 3 also says, People didn't want to listen to Jesus because they'd, they'd been to school with his brothers. They'd say things like, no, we know his sisters. I used to date one of them. Why am I going to listen to him? It's like everywhere Jesus was trying to make it clear to people that he wasn't just the almighty savior who could rescue them, but he was also the weak model who could show them this is what it's like to be a human being following God as your father. And I'm going to read a, a, a story, a famous story. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Mark 6, although I will put the words up on the screen. And I just want to open your eyes to what's going on in this famous story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Because what's happening here is Jesus is reaching out to you. If you've come here and uh, you think, actually, I, I'm all right, actually. It's a good job God's got a few people like me in the church. Something might happen around here. This is really for you. Because the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus wants to show you the biggest obstacle to God using you is that you think you're strong and you need to admit you're weak. People at the other end of the scale who say, I love being part of the King's Arms Church. It's amazing because there's so many brilliant people and even though I don't do very much for God, I get to bask in their reflected glory. <laughs> Jesus wants to say, listen, have you not read about the feeding of the 5,000? There's no heroes, there's just people who know how to call God their dad and to work with him. And even for people, if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're not sure what you are really and you're just looking in, sometimes people say things like, I, there's no point in me trying to follow Jesus because I could never make it. I've just got to tell you, that is the most Christian thing you could ever say. 
Someone who says, I can't do this thing without God's help 24-7. Man, you're at the point of breakthrough. There's no reason why this morning you should go home and have your Sunday lunch not as a child of God. This morning's the morning for you. I, I just want to open up just uh, one of the most famous passages in Mark's Gospel to help you to read it with fresh eyes. It's Mark 6, verse 32. Jesus and the disciples went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began teaching them many things. I just find that really interesting, even before we move on. Jesus had compassion. If I were writing it, I would say, Jesus had compassion on them, so they had an amazing ministry time. But it doesn't say that. It says, Jesus had compassion on them, so he taught them many things. You know, the answer to many of our challenges, many of our questions, is actually not to have the mother of all ministry times. It's to read Mark's Gospel. It's just to find out a bit more about what Jesus is really like, as I hope will happen this morning. By this time, it was late in the day. So Jesus' disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, no, why don't you give them something to eat? They said to him, because it would cost more than half a year's wages. Do you really want us to go out and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Well, how many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, we've got five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. Jesus gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. In other words, the women and the children aren't even in that number. We call it the feeding of the 5,000. It should really be the feeding of the 15,000. And every disciple at the end of this is going around, picking up bread in their basket, thinking, Jesus, how did you do that one? Wouldn't you? You're like thinking, this, I, I've, I've just been a waiter at the most exciting feast in history. Jesus, how did you do it? And maybe as you're picking up the bread, putting it in your basket, 12 disciples, 12 baskets, you're actually thinking, Jesus, how did you do that through us? And Jesus answers the question. The very next verse, most people kind of skim read past it. They don't really realize what Peter through Mark is trying to say to them. Just read the next verse. This is how it all happened. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. I've just called this message, What Lies Beneath. Because when you read these verses in Mark's Gospel, what Peter, Mark are trying to do is to just kind of rip the cover off Jesus' ministry and show you what lies beneath. What is it that enabled Jesus to do something that incredible, really break through, blink and you'll miss it? He prayed. So simple. And uh, it's one of the common themes of Mark's gospel. Mark 1, 33 to 35 says this. The whole town gathered at Peter's front door. Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He drove out many demons. Very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. 
like Mark just wants to rip the lid off Jesus' ministry and say, listen, it's actually not that complicated, really. The reason Jesus was able to do this thing is because he knew God as his dad. Mark, 4, uh, Mark 14, verse 36, Peter overhears Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says this, Abba, Father. I've been watching this um, TV program on BBC Three or Four, uh, which is Israeli with English subtitles. I'm not really that cultured, to be honest. When I'm watching TV, I don't want subtitles. I don't want to read. I'd read a book if I wanted to read. I want to watch telly. But I just got into this Israeli series. And the thing I really liked about it was um, there's like this six-year-old girl with her dad. And there's these two teenagers with their dad. And there's a terrorist who takes over this building who talks to his dad. And every single time, the six-year-old, the teenager, the 35-year-old terrorist talk to their dad on the phone or face-to-face, on my screen, it says, Dad. And what I hear as they're talking Hebrew is, Abba. And to be honest, I was just really encouraged by it. I'm thinking, this is what I can do with God. I get to do this thing. There's a six-year-old child jumping into her dad's arms saying, Abba, and I get to do that. It's not just like a, a, a kiddie thing. There's a 35-year-old terrorist ringing his dad. And he gets to call him Abba. He's a big guy. I wouldn't want to be in a fight with him. And yet he gets to call his dad Abba. And I'm just thinking, this is what God allows me to do. And it begins to explain why Jesus was able to do this. Why did Jesus come in weakness? 2 Corinthians 13 verse 4 says this. He was crucified in weakness, yet he now lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak with him, in him, yet by God's power we shall live with him. Why did Jesus come in weakness? For you. And for me, if Jesus had come with this, a six-pack like Superman, like the self-confidence of Captain America, as unruffled, no hair out of place like James Bond, we would just think, well, we love and worship Jesus, but we could never be like him. And Jesus says to us in John 14, verse 12, you will do what I am doing because I am going to my Father. Like Jesus came in weakness so that we would get This isn't just how Jesus ministered. This is how we're meant to follow him. It's like Jesus throughout the Gospels is constantly emphasizing his relationship with his heavenly dad, with God. In Luke 2, verse 49, Jesus' parents, so-called parents, Joseph isn't really his dad, but Joseph and Mary, they've lost him. And they turn up finally after days of looking for him. They find him in the temple, and they're surprised he's in the temple. And he's surprised that they're surprised, and he says, didn't you get I needed to be in my dad's house? And uh, the Pharisees say to Jesus, how on earth are you doing these things? He says, I've just got to tell you the truth. I can't do anything by myself. I can only do what I see my dad doing. This is John 5, verses 19 to 20. Because whatever my dad does, he shows me, and I join in. It's just so simple that we miss it. And so when Jesus is raised from the dead and he appears to the women uh, who've come to the tomb, he says to them this, Go and tell my brothers, in other words, go tell the disciples and those who follow me, I'm returning to my God and your God, to my dad and your dad's. It's like Jesus is saying, everything I've done is for you to do as well. It's like like Jesus is saying, my entire ministry is dad and son, God and son. You know when you're on the motorway and a van speeds past you and it just says Jones and son or Jones and daughter, It's like Jesus is saying it's a bit like that, really. God's my dad. 
I spend time with him, and then I look up to heaven and I say, Dad, what are we going to do right now? And then all heaven breaks loose. And that's what I want you to do as well. It's amazing. I love these verses, but the disciples just don't get it. Let's read it. Let's keep reading. Following verse. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and Jesus was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars, which is a bit odd because they're in a sailboat. They're straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, which is also quite odd, because it not only means that Jesus has been praying for 10 hours, but it also means that the disciples have been straining at the oars for 10 hours, and they're in the middle of Lake Galilee, which is only seven miles across. 10 hours to go three and a half miles. Frustrating night's work for the disciples. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. Who else can walk on water? They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they hadn't understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. It's interesting. If you read Mark's gospel too quickly, you miss these things. If you slow down and read slowly. Mark says to us, the reason they had problems in the boat was they hadn't understood about the loaves. You're thinking, no, no, no. No, that's, you're, you're wrong, Mark. The reason they had problems in the boat was they hadn't understood about sails and wind and not really needing to row with a sailboat. No, the problem was all about the loaves. Mark says to us, you've got to read this miracle and this problem together because they go together. It's like Mark saying, there are so many Christians who honestly, their Christian life is pulling hard on an oar for God and they're wondering why they're getting nowhere. It's like, because they haven't understood the story of the loaves. They haven't understood what Jesus is actually trying to do here. Jesus has spent 10 hours in prayer and he can walk on water they can't even row through. He gets in the sailboat and the moment he enters the boat, the wind which has been against them dies down. Do you see what's going on here? It's like on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes, it says he was like the sound of a rushing wind. We're meant to get what's going on here. It's like these people trying to serve God in their own strength. Jesus said, we better go to the other side. Come on, let's obey. And Jesus said, no, no, that wasn't really what I meant. What I meant was spend time with your dad and you'll be able to do anything I tell you to do. I love what Jesus even says to them. In English, it comes across as, um, uh, take courage, it is I. Sounds a bit pompous, doesn't it? That's not actually, I mean, it's not a bad translation, but it's not the best translation. See, in Greek, the language which Mark's writing in, what Jesus actually says, take courage, I am, which is the name which God gave himself when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Moses said, listen, if you want me to go and say to Pharaoh, let all your slaves go, this is going to be really hard. How on earth am I going to do this thing? I've got to tell the Israelites who sent me, they're never going to believe me. And God said, just tell them my name is I Am. It's normally translated Yahweh, the Lord, the one who really is. And Jesus comes to the disciples having just spent time with his dad and says, don't worry, I am. He's like, don't worry, I'm, I'm one half of God and Son. And God's I Am. And guess what that means? That right now in this situation, I am by the power that God gives me. Is that how you cope with problems? Do you know, it's dead easy to worship God on a Sunday morning. 
But are you able on a Monday morning when the storms are choppy and you're pulling hard on the oars to say, actually, it's still God and son. It's still God and daughter. And come on, guys. Come on, team. It's okay. My God's with me. Is that how you act? I mean, sharing your faith at work isn't that hard. You just have to share your faith. The reason we struggle to share our faith at work is because we don't have much faith at work. Take your faith to work. It's really easy to share it. In the midst of the storm, you think it's all right. I am. I, I've, been a, I've been adopted into God's family. I'm a child of God. That means whatever storms are going on, it's okay. Take courage. I am. In the midst of this, I am. Do you get what Jesus is trying to do? He's also trying to stop us from thinking 10 hours in prayer. There's no way I can do that. See, that we so easily receive forgiveness as a free gift from God and then try and snatch fruitfulness as a work of our own strength, don't we? It's like we can even hear a message like this and think, I've got it. It's all about praying harder. Okay, Christians don't sleep. Sleep is for wimps. Pray all night and I'm sure God will give me strength. No. You've got to follow Peter around. What did he learn through this? Acts 3, he's walking down the street. There's a beggar who's lame, and the beggar says, can I have some money? And Peter doesn't say, no, you can't have money. And I tell you what, I better go away and just not sleep for a night. If I pray for a whole night, maybe I'll be able to heal you. He just says to him, I haven't got any money, mate, but what I have got, I'll give you. And he heals him instantly. And the crowds gather, and they think, man, this guy must have an amazing prayer life. And in Acts 3, verse 12, Peter actually says to them, why are you staring at us like it's as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. What, what Peter says is this was never about us. It was always about God and son, God and daughter. Is that how you live your life? The way Peter even describes the ministry of Jesus in Acts 10, verse 38, talking to a group of unbelievers, he says this, we would say... Jesus of Nazareth did amazing miracles because he's the son of God, and of course he did. This is how Peter explains it. God the Father anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went around and doing good, healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. Not because he was the divine son of God, although he was. Not because he'd never sinned, although he hadn't. Peter says, no, he, he, he limited himself in exactly the same ways as you and me. So he could show us what it really means to be a human being that follows God. Do you want this? If you're a Christian, do you want this? I, I, I love following your stuff. I sometimes listen to your stuff online. I'll read your blogs online. I follow Simon and others from this church online, uh, on Twitter and so on. I, I get encouraged by you. And one of the things I really pick up from you is the Father heart of God. I believe one of the things God wants to say to you even this morning is the Father heart of God is not just about your experience of the Father heart of God. It's the experience of everyone around you when you leave that experience and go out and say, I am the daughter of God. I am the Son of God. You know, all those great experiences you have are so that you can go around doing good and healing people because God is with you. It's like amazing. It actually gets better. Let's carry on. Final four verses. It honestly gets better. It's not just God the Father and God the Son. It's also the Holy Spirit involved in this as well. When they crossed over, they landed 
in Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran through that whole region and, and carried those who were ill on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed those who were ill in the marketplaces. Now slow down and read slowly. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. You can actually translate the Greek, all who touched him were healed, but most Bible commentators would say, no, it's not saying all who touched Jesus were healed. It's saying everyone who touched Jesus' anorak was healed. It's referring back to Mark 5, where there's this woman, and she's completely got the wrong end of the stick. There's this amazing prophecy in Malachi that says, the Son of God, the Messiah, will rise from the dead like the sun rising in the morning and his sun rays will heal the world. Great. Except that in Hebrew, the word for sun ray and tassel on an anorak happen to be the same word. Don't know why. But um, there's this woman, she's read Malachi. She's thinking, I believe Jesus is the Messiah and he's He's got tassels on his anorak. If only I touch one of them, I'll be healed. And God loves faith so much. She gets healed. So words totally got out. Touch the rabbi's anorak and you're going to be healed. And most Bible commentators say, listen, Jesus arrives. He's been awake all night. No, sorry. He, fed, he taught all day. He fed 5,000 people. He prayed all night. He walked across Lake Galilee. The guy's exhausted. Most Bible commentators say the reason it says all who touched it were healed is Jesus went into a house and went to sleep and just hung his anorak on the door outside. But yeah, if you want to be healed, touch the tassels, go for it. I'm going to bed. And it's like Mark's trying to say, you know, do not do the thing where you think, well, of course, God can use some people. He can never use someone like me. God can use an anorak. God can use a tassel on an anorak. I mean, anoraks are bad enough, but who has anoraks with tassels on them? God can use tassels. They can use you. It's like Mark's trying to say to us, you have no idea what happens when you participate in Jesus. Jesus talks about us being in him and him in us. Us being united with Jesus, the Son of God. Peter says something scandalous in one of his letters. He says, we are the ones who get to participate in the divine nature. You think, Peter, that sounds blasphemous. It isn't. It's just the scandal of the gospel. That you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God says, let me forgive your sins so that I can unite you with my Son, so that actually your life is Father, Son, Daughter, united with Jesus and Holy Spirit. That is what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples when he feeds 5,000 people. That is what Jesus is trying to say to you, that if you're not a Christian, you're thinking, I could never do this thing, that God's saying, tell me something I don't know. I know you can't do this thing. That's why I want you to participate in the divine nature. I want you to come and get your sins forgiven, not as an end in itself, but so I can unite you with my son Jesus and we can start having some real fun together. And if you're a Christian thinking, I'd really like to do something for Jesus, but I find it so hard. Of course you find it hard. It's impossible. But the moment you realize, I can't do this. But God lets me be united with his son. And Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Daughter, united with the Son, Holy Spirit. It's a lesson of the loaves. 
Are you a church that gets that Christians are children of God? Does the whole of Bedford know it? Because the whole of Galilee knew it. The whole of Galilee knew that whatever storms might come its way, there was someone in town who would say, it's okay, take courage, I am. You live in a part of the world where people need to hear that. You live in a part of the world where, frankly, the need is overwhelming, like the 5,000. And just to help you to close, I'm going to reread the feeding of the 5,000. Just reread the words now that we understand what's really going on. And I just want you to ask yourself, how's God speaking to me? In a moment, we'll have a chance to respond. Ask yourself, how do I need to respond to Jesus right now? Let me read the words again. It's going to come up on the screen. It was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away. First thing God wants to say is, he knows that the problems are overwhelming. He knows your work situation's too big for you. He knows that when you look out on Bedford, let alone Britain, and think, how on earth could I make a difference in the world? He knows that it's too much for you. Do you ever have those days when you look at your to-do list and you just think, send it away? <laughs> do you ever look at your children and think, send them away? If you're a small group leader, do you ever look at the people God's entrusted to your care and think, send them away? God says, I know. It is too much for you. But get what happens when you know it's not about you. It's about your heavenly Father. He answered, give them something to eat. That's the beauty of the Christian life. Jesus says to us, I am the bread of life. And then he says, you give, some, give, you give them something to eat. It's like, this is not God's favorite time of the week, you know. It's not like God wakes up. No, God doesn't really wake up, does he? It's not like the sun goes up on a Sunday morning and God thinks, fantastic, my favorite moment of the week when people come together in buildings to worship me. This isn't the main event. This is when we come together to eat and we get some bread and God says, go off and do it. Well, I took my three-year-old son for a picnic the other day in Westminster. I gave him some sandwiches. Pigeons were all around him. He didn't say to me, Dad, can I feed the pigeons? He just gave him some of his bread. This is what happens. You come, you receive bread, and Jesus says, come on, feed some people this week. It's not about you. It's about knowing your dad. Let's carry on. They said to him, that would take more than a year's wages. You really don't want us to spend that much money, do you? And he says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. I love the fact Jesus doesn't deny the size of the problem. He doesn't say you guys are really exaggerating. No, they weren't exaggerating. Feeding this many people would cost as much as buying a brand new car. He's like, he's not downsizing the problem. He's just upsizing their view of God. He's saying, do you not realize how big your dad is? Just go and see what you've got, which is helpful, isn't it? Because as Christians, we sometimes say, well, God would never use me. And Jesus just says to us, well, could you just find out what you've got? You might not have, you might not have very much, to be honest. It might be five loaves and two fish amongst 15,000 people. But bring me what you've got and see what I can do with it. But Jesus is just saying, you have no idea what God can do through anyone, through the tassel on an anorak, let alone through you. Keep going. Jesus told them to make all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Which is weird, isn't it? I mean, honestly, the hardest part of this miracle 
is not working out how to cater for people in hundreds and fifties. Why does Mark even mention that? I mean, if you're going to feed the 5,000 and have so much food left over that you've got basketfuls going on, really it could just be potluck, couldn't it? It's like, stick it on tables, they can come and get it. We don't need to organize them, they'll find the food. I think it's what I do with my kids. I like doing DIY in my house, I like doing stuff in the garden, and my kids want to get involved, and they're rubbish, okay? Uh, I don't want to be unfair to them. My youngest child is three. He's rubbish at gardening. There's nothing he can contribute, really, and I find him something every time. Even if it's not that important, I will find him a job to do. I'm mowing the lawn, and I'm saying to him, oh, if you see any bits of grass that have fallen out of the mower, could you just pick them up and bring them to me? It's like, it's not even that important, but I find something for him. It's like Jesus is looking at the disciples thinking, I really don't know what you can contribute to this miracle, but you can count to 100. No, looking at you, some of you can count to 100. Some of you can only make 50. It's okay. I've got a job for everyone here. It's like Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter how weak you think you are, I want you to be involved. And it just says, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. That's the secret. See, what we do is we look at the problems and we look up to heaven on a good day and cry out, God, where are you in the midst of this? Jesus looks up to heaven and gives thanks. That's the difference. See, when I'm saying Jesus wants you to pray and be connected to your Father, sometimes I'm saying it, but what you're hearing is you need to pray more. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying you need to look up to heaven and say, God, I need your help. God knows you need his help without you telling him that. What you most need to do is look up to heaven and say, God, I thank you I've got your help. I thank you you're my dad. I thank you you saw this one coming. I thank you this isn't a catering disaster. This is a miracle opportunity. Jesus looks up to heaven and says, I just thank you that you had this one covered all along. That's what God's calling you to do. Next time you see someone who needs the power of God, don't lift up your voice and scream to heaven. Look up to heaven and thank God. Get used to saying, I haven't got any money, but what I have, I give you. I look up to heaven, I say, thanks, Dad. And then we go into action. God and son, God and daughter, doing what Christians are meant to do. And then lastly, final slide. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish, which again is quite odd because it's all biodegradable. There's lots of birds in the area. It's not like the bread and fish is going to be there much longer. And frankly, if you can feed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, it's not like you need to stockpile provisions for the next preaching journey. What's it? Jesus says, there's 12 disciples. Take 12 baskets. I want each of you to gather some stuff up because this isn't about gathering food. This is about me saying to you, you've got an individual role to play. Don't cry out to God, I want the children to be helped. Fine. Divide them into 50s and 100s and say, all right, well, I'm going to serve in the children's role. Don't say, I really want to change politics. Great. We'll divide it into something small. The role that God's got for you to play, it might be writing to your MP. I'd wait till Friday if I were you. <laughs> it might be getting involved on your town council. It might even be joining the the board of governors on a school it's something small and jesus just says listen everyone's got a part to play 
Judas Iscariot has got a basket here. That's the weird thing. It's like people who aren't Christians come to church, they think, oh, I quite enjoyed the message, it was all right. You know, this guy seemed to believe what he was talking about, but of course it wouldn't, it doesn't apply to me. Judas Iscariot was in on this. He made his own, the only reason you would go home today without knowing God as your father is if you decide to. In a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to respond, and you can run forward and say, I'm in. And if you're a Christian, the only reason why your life would not be everything God intends it to be would be if you try and rely on your own strength, or if you do the other extreme. It looks very humble, but it's exactly the same thing. You say, because I'm weak, God can't use me. Because you're weak, God can use you. And because you think you're strong, God can't use you. God is just inviting us into this amazing family business. God and son. God and daughter. Are you up for it? This is what it means to be a Christian. It's fun. It's really good. People say, I couldn't give up all that to follow Jesus. Give up? There's nothing to give up following Jesus. Of course, you give up all the stuff Jesus says you mustn't do, and some of it's very painful. But what you get back, man, 